Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of That's It, the podcast from He Spoke Style. I'm Brian Sakawa, and do you know what just happened? I just recorded this entire episode, like beginning to end. It was probably like 15 minutes long. I recorded it, and then I went to go look at the track. I do it in GarageBand, and I went to look at the the track, and it had stopped, and it said, did not record because there was too much blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. What? What? I've never had this happen. I'm looking at it right now as I'm recording this. I, I really, really hope that this does not happen because I will be really, really mad if it does. Oh, man, I am smoked. <laughs> we have been working really hard. Um, if you noticed on Instagram, we uh, very exciting. We have found a studio slash office space and are working very, very hard, which means painting and uh, mopping and vacuuming and painting some more and priming and ordering water coolers and espresso machines and all the stuff that we need to put in there. <laughs> but man, I always underestimate how much time and effort painting is, especially, I guess, when, you know, the walls are like 15 feet tall. Oh man. So anyway, please forgive me if I'm a little out of sorts, but uh, yeah, a lot of good stuff going on. And I know that in the last episode, I said I was going to do an episode about failure. And unfortunately, I have failed to do an episode about failure. Well, I haven't failed. I've just, I'm putting it off for another week because I, I think it's a really, really good topic and one that many of us can relate to. I mean, I, all of us can relate to failure in some way, shape, or form. And as a result, I, I want to put a little bit more time and thought into it. Uh, so look out for that. It's going to be in the next one. I promise you that. I just didn't have the time or energy to devote to giving you a good podcast on the topic of failure this week. So chalk that up as another failure. <laughs> uh, I will not fail twice in a row to do that episode. But anyway, so this week, as I was coming home from painting the studio one night, I uh, was in the car and I was listening to NPR as I am want to do. And there was a segment where I guess this is a the thing they do all the time. But this is the first time I had heard it, where they talk to musicians and they ask them about the music that was really sort of definitive and life-changing for them. And I thought that was a really cool thing because we're all definitely affected by music in many different ways, and, and music is so powerful. So I thought today I would share with you five of the pieces of music that were especially important to me and that I found just kind of life-changing and, and earth-shattering when I heard them. So the first piece is uh, by Igor Stravinsky, and it's called The Rite of Spring. And I discovered this piece, uh, strangely enough, um, watching a documentary about John Coltrane. I first came across this in high school. The documentary is called The World According to John Coltrane, and being a young saxophone player, uh, learning jazz at the time, you know, of, of course I'm very into John Coltrane and trying to soak up and learn as much as I can about him and his music. So in this documentary, they have a whole bunch of other musicians that worked with him and knew him. And they're a famous saxophonist named Jimmy Heath is talking about sort of the evolution of Coltrane's music and how he got to where he got to. And he's talking about Charlie Parker, who was, you know, one of the progenitors of the bebop style. So he's talking about Charlie Parker. They said they found out that Bird was going to the libraries and checking out classical music scores. And, and not just like any classical music scores. He was like 
getting the scores by Stravinsky for <laughs> the Rite of Spring and the Firebird Suite. And I had never heard of these pieces. I mean, I was listening to Metallica <laughs> and, uh, you know, Nirvana and, and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden during that time. So I didn't know who Stravinsky was. I didn't have a music class in, in my high school. But I definitely wanted to know who Stravinsky was after hearing about this, <laughs> that it was, you know, important music to Charlie Parker. So I went to the record store, well, CD store, I guess, and picked up both recordings of The Rite of Spring and Firebird Suite. And man, when I listened to The Rite of Spring for the first time, wow. I mean, the piece was written in 1913 for a ballet, and it actually was quite infamous because it was like nothing anyone had ever heard before. And, and, and the story goes that there was a riot <laughs> at the concert hall <laughs> the evening it was premiered. People were just really pissed off. You know, this was not classical music. And part of that is, is, is very primal and rhythmic. And I mean, the, the sounds that Stravinsky was getting back in the 1910s <laughs> were very, very modern and, and, and still sound modern today. I have to say. So when I heard this, I just could not believe that this was a piece of classical music. It, it almost sounds like rock and roll in certain spots. And it just just completely changed my whole mindset about classical music. And, and it was really the first piece that kind of got me hip to 20th century and, you know, contemporary classical music. And, and that's sort of a path that I went down for many, many years. And, and I still love it. So, oh, actually, uh, kind of an add-on to this Rite of Spring thing. I mean, it was such a powerful piece to me. One of the things that I always wanted to do here was a jazz version, and, and not just like a, a small combo, but I'm talking like, you know, full-on 18-piece jazz orchestra. So, I mean, there have been um, other jazz versions of the Rite of Spring. The Bad Plus did one not too long ago. But anyway, when I ran this music series at the Contemporary Museum in Baltimore, I knew a guy who was a really great saxophone player and a really fabulous arranger and uh, asked him if he would be interested in, in kind of taking the, the Rite of Spring and adapting it for jazz orchestra, and he was totally for it. So the result was one of my favorite things that we accomplished when we were doing the music series. And um, it was called the Rewrite of Spring composer-arranger Daryl Brenzel, and we made a recording of it. We, re we recorded both sets that night. Um, if you search for Rewrite of Spring, Daryl Brenzel online, you, you can find it, I'm sure. Uh, really, really great arrangement, and I, I totally recommend checking it out. Uh, okay, so next is uh, Giant Steps by John Coltrane, and I'm talking about the tune, though the album is amazing as well. Um, of course, as a saxophone player, definitely was into John Coltrane, First came across Coltrane's playing, you know, when he was playing with Miles in the mid-50s. But then, of course, you know, Blue Train in 1958, amazing album. And I like the timeline, <laughs> the chronological order of these albums. So Blue Train was 1958. Miles Davis's Kind of Blue was 1959. And Giant Steps was 1960. And if you just, like, take those three albums and look at them... And the type of playing that Coltrane was doing, it's just, the progression is, is so amazing. So, and one thing that Miles Davis's album, Kind of Blue, is known for is, is exploring modal jazz. Not too many chord changes, one or two chord changes per, per piece. And Coltrane was obviously exploring that with Miles at the time. So one year later, the fact that he's playing the way he is and the style of music he is on Giant Steps, where he 
like if kind of blue was minimalist in terms of chord changes, giant steps is maximalist. Instead of one or two chords per piece or form, 32 bars in kind of blue, Coltrane is changing chords every two beats in giant steps. And it was just completely revolutionary and groundbreaking for the time. And I mean, so much so that, I mean, Train can totally hang because he made this up and, and uh, you know, he has no problem with it. But I mean, if you listen to the recording, it doesn't seem like a lot of the other musicians are quite ready for it. So like, for example, Tommy Flanagan, the pianist, is, is like doing everything he can to try and keep up. Um, but you know, it's probably not his best solo ever. And I mean, you can hear that it was just so difficult, even for these like great jazz players. So it was just just um, a testament to how different and revolutionary it was. And for me also as a saxophone player, young saxophone player, I was being taught that, you know, technique was very important and the evenness of technique and evenness and speed of technique. And what Coltrane is doing, like, regard, you know, don't even think about the type of improvising he's doing over these chord changes, but his technique is just so perfect. And I think that was a real turning point in jazz and for me as well as I was developing as a musician. And then it, talking about chronologically, in 1960, there were Coltrane had a couple albums between that, this, but A Love Supreme comes out in 1964. And I mean, that is completely different. I mean, he's on another planet at that point. So anyway... Giant Steps, one of my all-time favorites. Next is Tomorrow Never Knows by The Beatles, and this is on uh, Revolver. So I know a lot of people get into The Beatles when they're younger. I was not one of those people. I had a friend in high school who was like super into The Beatles, but I don't know, for whatever reason, I was I was too busy listening to Nirvana and Soundgarden and Dream Theater and stuff like that. Um, I did have a rock band, so I needed to learn that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, the Beatles weren't really on my radar. And, you know, it was like a group that my mom liked. So I don't know, you know, people tend not to like the music that their parents like. However, um, and I, I still like avoided the Beatles for one reason or another until I was in grad school and I took a history of rock class of all things. And um, I still remember the day that the professor put this recording on. And it just took me by surprise because, I mean, it's, you know, the middle of the afternoon, I'm tired, I'm thinking about practicing or some concert I have to play. And then he's like, okay, we're going to play a Beatles recording. I'm like, all right, whatever, you know, you know, <laughs> I'm going to hear help or something like that. Uh, but no, he puts on Tomorrow Never Knows and, and like my hair just like goes back. I'm like, and I'm like, whoa, like if you're listening, you probably have heard the song, but it just sounds so fresh and modern. Like it could have been recorded today. It's so innovative. They were using tape loops and, you know, drone type of things. And it had a very Eastern and Indian kind of sound. It was just, it was just so, so revolutionary. And, and it just blew me away. And from that point on, the, the Beatles became sort of a, a fascination and obsession for me. And I got super deep into the Beatles. Whenever I get into something, I really get into it. But yeah, Tomorrow Never Knows really, really uh, changed my life in, in many, many ways. So awesome piece. Okay, so the next piece is um, Different Trains by Steve Reich. Steve Reich is um, known as a minimalist composer, usually spoken of in the same breath as Philip Glass and uh, Terry Riley. Um, so I heard this piece, Different Trains, in an undergraduate 20th century music theory class of all places. And again, it was like, it was very similar to 
one I heard, Tomorrow Never Knows. I'm just sitting in class, and the teacher said, we're going to listen to this piece today. I'm like, okay. So she puts it on, and, and I just remember being so completely moved by it, not just because of the music, but the subject matter, too. So um, the whole story behind the piece is that during World War II, Steve Reich was making train trips back and forth to New York and Los Angeles to visit his parents, who were separated at the time. And then years later, when he grew up, he noticed that the same time that he was making those trips between New York and Los Angeles, that Jews in Europe were being transported on trains during the Holocaust. And as a Jew, this is, um, as you might imagine, very moving to him. So the piece for me was interesting because uh, not only for a very powerful subject matter, but the way he fused acoustic instruments with pre-recorded stuff. So what he does in this piece is he takes pre-recorded interviews or snippets of pre-recorded interviews with Holocaust survivors. And many of the, um, well, not many of, all of the snippets that he takes have a very lyrical quality. So someone says from Chicago to New York. So he takes the melody out of how they say it and gives it to the string quartet to play. So it's very minimalistic and, and rhythmic and just really cool how the two things are woven together. I'm not doing a very good job of describing it, so just go uh, to the blog and listen. And by the way, I'm sorry that we're not actually playing sound samples here. I'm worried a little bit about the legality of that stuff, and and you know we like to do everything legit here at He Spoke Style. So uh, rather than kind of roll the dice and hope that no one gets mad that we've put copyrighted music on the podcast, we're just gonna not do that. So go to the blog. We'll have. Um, links to YouTube videos where people are violating copyright all the time (laughs) Uh, so you can hear them. So anyway, moving on. Um, The next is not a particular piece, but rather an entire album. And it's by Mel Lewis and the Jazz Orchestra, and it's the music of Bob Brookmeyer. Bob Brookmeyer is an amazing jazz composer, arranger, and valve trombonist. This particular album... So oh, actually, um, Mel Lewis and the Jazz Orchestra was, well, nowadays it's called the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, and they play every Monday night at the Village Vanguard in New York. If you've never made it there to see them, I definitely recommend it. They're amazing. The energy is is incredible. So this particular album I love for a couple of reasons, and one of the reasons is that it's sort of like an entire arc. Like, it's not just one piece, two, you know, piece, 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 and then you have the whole album. It's like the whole album tells a story or at least to me it does. And then I love listening to it from start to finish all the time. Uh, actually, I should tell you, it's, it's kind of hard to find. I, I don't know if we'll be able to find a recording of it online, but it's on a label called Red Baron. Even when I found it back in the mid-90s, it was still a little hard to come by. And I think since it has been discontinued, though you never know, maybe it's been re- released. I should probably check into that. Anyway, so one of the other things that I love about this is just the showcase of the individual soloists. And I'm talking a lot about saxophonists here. And again, it's going to be some of the saxophone playing that really blows me away. There's one tune on the album called Make Me Smile. um, And it's just amazing playing by Dick Oates, the lead alto player. And then uh, the piece called The Nasty Dance has a younger Jill Lovano just completely ripping it up on the tenor saxophone. The energy of this whole album is is amazing. And the sounds and the textures that Brookmeyer gets out of the band, uh, God, it's just, it just engulfs you. That's sort of the only way I can describe the effect that it has on me. So yeah, really, really awesome recording. So those are the five pieces of music that made a big impact 
on me in many ways, both in my musical development, also emotionally in many, many ways too. So I'd love to hear, I'm always interested in finding new pieces of music that maybe I haven't heard before or listened to recently. So please go to the site um, and find the posts and, and leave some of your favorites because I'd love to know what they are. And it's always fun to share stories about your favorite piece of music and you know what it means to you. So definitely um, share it with the community. And I think that's it for this episode. Yeah. So also, if you like the podcast, got to put this in. If you like the podcast, please consider going to iTunes and uh, giving us a five-star rating. That would be fantastic. And that's it. I'm out. Talk to you next week. Our podcast is edited by Mac McLaughlin and recorded right here at my desk.